Welcome to From Lab to Life. I'm Alison Rogers. In this episode, we examine the thorny issue of accelerated access to promising medicines. Barely a month goes by without news of a breakthrough in the treatment of a life-threatening disease. But the reality is it takes time for patients to benefit from these medical discoveries. How to speed up the process while ensuring the welfare of the patient comes first is challenging. But someone who thrives on these sorts of issues is Professor Emeritus Lloyd Sanson, AO. He's a former chair of the Australian Pharmaceutical Advisory Committee and was appointed as the chair of Australia's Pharmaceutical Benefits Advisory Committee from 2001 to 2012. Lloyd is also a member of the Board of Belbury. To progress this issue, Belbury brought together more than 50 experts from across the globe for three and a half days to Adelaide, South Australia. This isn't the first time for Lloyd and Belbury. Every couple of years, Belbury hosts a symposium aimed at tackling a medical issue that is often put in the too hard basket. This meeting took place in June 2023. I asked Lloyd where the idea for this symposium came from. It's been a part of the Belbury philosophy of actually facilitating debate about issues which are ethical in construct but practical in nature. And so this is the fourth such meeting we've had. And this one is about accelerated access. Uh, And what we've seen over the last two or three years internationally is an increasing utilisation of an accelerated pathway for regulatory approval. It started many, many years ago with access to HIV medicines. But it's become much more common now. And some 25% approximately of all drugs registered or approved by the Food and Drug Administration in the United States at the moment is via the accelerated pathway. And that accelerated pathway is a pathway for drugs which have been designed to meet a higher clinical need, although that's difficult to define, uh, but for which the data is not absolute, if you like. It's early data. So there's less certainty with respect to its toxicity, to its efficacy. And so this was a, is this an ethical constraint. Is it ethical to make things drugs available too early or too late? We haven't seen much action at this point in time. And I think that may be related to you know, the whole COVID experience. But the COVID experience also showed the way to us. I mean, to think that we had... Uh, you know, isolation of a virus and a, a, an effective vaccine within t- less than 12 months. is It just shows that we, if we put our mind to it, we can do it. We just need to use that as an example. And so the question is for Belbury was, is this a topic which is relevant to its, to its philosophy and to its mission? The answer is yes, it was. Let's understand how new therapies are approved. In most countries, there's a two-step process. Firstly, the regulator looks at the evidence around the safety and efficacy of the therapy, establishing that the medicine does what it's supposed to do and doesn't do anything unexpected. The process of assessing safety and efficacy is known as approval, and it's generally done by the regulators in a country, such as the Therapeutic Goods Administration, the TGA in Australia, or the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, in the United States as well as the other regulators in other countries. Eddie Cliff is an Australian-born haematology registrar. That's a haematologist in training. 
He's currently based at the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston at Harvard Medical School as a postdoctoral research fellow. He gives us an overview of how the process works and how it differs in the US, which is the biggest market in the world. The US uh, is kind of different to the rest of the world in that approval is almost synonymous with or uh, concomitant with access. That is, there are some problems certainly around equity in the US, but in terms of if you have good quality insurance, then as soon as something is FDA approved, most people then have pretty good access, with some caveats, but pretty good access. Conversely, the rest of the world, as you know, has a two-step process where the second step is called HTO Health Technology Assessment, and often there's quite a substantial delay, such as in Australia, where often uh, it takes a while for that process to happen. And so I think calling it accelerated access really speaks to how in the rest of the world do we move that access point closer to that approval point. And the kind of elephant in the room there is price negotiation and how do you speed that process up so that neither the payer nor the industry feels like they're losing out in that negotiation, but that it happens a lot quicker so that patients and clinicians get access to the novel drugs that we want to get access to. As Eddie Cliff says, in many countries, there's the second step, which is known as the Health Technology Assessment, or HTA, which is about examining cost effectiveness. This takes the therapy from approval to access, and it usually occurs in countries where the government pays for the therapy, so cost effectiveness is important. Questions such as how does the therapy compare to others, what other therapies are available on the market, and how much will it cost are posed. HDA in Australia is undertaken by the Pharmaceutical Benefits Advisory Committee, widely known as the PBAC, on behalf of the federal government. Hello, I'm Brian O'Rourke. I'm from Canada, and I'm also the chair of the HTA Steering Committee at the Centre for Innovation and Regulatory Sciences, and I'm on their Scientific Advisory Council. And then I do a, a dabble in some consulting, so it keeps me connected uh, internationally with all of the various stakeholders uh, in the, both the pharmaceutical and medical device industries. Brian gives us a rundown of the stakeholders that are key in accelerated access. First and foremost are patients, people that have suffered or knew somebody that suffered from one of those diseases. They are part of a, a patient advocacy organization in various countries from around the world. We've also included some clinicians who treat those patients. Then we have the regulators. They're the ones tasked with the responsibility of reviewing the evidence, looking at the potential benefits of this new therapy and the potential harms of this new therapy, as well as a number of other things that they look at. And they provide what's referred to as the marketing authorization. They allow the pharmaceutical company to sell the product to treat the patients. But in many countries, it now needs to go beyond just regulatory approval. Um, many of these new medications are very expensive, and somebody needs to pay for it because most individuals do not have that financial ability to pay $100,000 or a million dollars for a gene therapy. So countries have put in place health technology assessment agencies, and their job is to look at these new medicines in a very different way from the regulators. The job of the HTA agencies and the community that I represent is to look at it from a comparative uh, perspective. 
So we look at comparing this new technology with whatever else has been used in the past, the current standard of care for those patients. And we'll look and see, is this new one better? Does it provide value to the patients and value to taxpayers? So we also will put a health economic or a budget impact uh, review to go with our clinical review and come out with a recommendation to the payers, whether that's an insurance company or a government body uh, that provides the funding or the reimbursement for those therapies. So our recommendations usually go to those payers and uh, it allows them to make a, um, an informed decision, uh, even though there still will be significant uncertainty. That's one of the biggest challenges that we face now with these accelerated reviews by the regulators. It makes our job rather difficult when we don't have enough evidence to make a good judgment on that recommendation that we would give to the payer. And we understand that pressure. If me or one of my loved ones was suffering from a lethal disease, I would want to ensure that I could do everything uh, to either provide a cure or to make their remaining days comfortable. It's worth talking about why we all think about accelerated access as something different because we all think about our own spot in the chain. My name's Ann Single and I'm from the Patient Voice Initiative. I'm based in Brisbane. Uh, the other role I do is I chair the HTAI Patient and Citizens Involvement in HTA Interest Group. It's an amazing thing to get these people from around the globe in one room talking about a topic that matters actually to all of them. And you just don't do that every day. But I couldn't get 30 minutes with these people on the phone and a lot of them couldn't get 30 minutes with each other. They're very busy people with a lot of priorities. And the fact that you can bring them to Adelaide I think is amazing. There's a lot of things I wanted to talk to them about. But having the chance to talk about accelerated access was really key. And so, of course, I come from a patient community's perspective. So every part of that chain before it gets to patient communities is important. But I don't want us to call it accelerated access until someone's actually accessed it and potentially got the benefit of it. So trying to work out... Firstly, why that chain is there and what are the, the barriers to working together? It seems like it's simple, but it, it's really not. They're, they're different players with different priorities, but they do have a shared value about the patients. And I really like the way Lloyd has brought us back to the patients all the time because actually I think it's one of the few things we, we genuinely all agree about is we all think we're doing something useful for patients. So if we keep focused on that, I think there's an ability to think about how we can overcome the structures we have that make it hard to work together. Ian Kerridge is well qualified to have a view on this issue. He's a professor of bioethics and medicine at the University of Sydney, as well as being a haematologist and bone marrow transplant physician at the Royal North Shore Hospital. This area is really full of ethical issues, and those ethical issues go to access, care, providing things that are safe to people, issues of equity, issues of supply, and issues about how we want the health system and our scientific processes and our political processes to work, and they're all ethical questions. They're ones that people struggle, I think, to see as ethical problems, 
but they're ethical issues. My name is Josh Sharfstein. I am on the faculty of the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, and I live in Baltimore, Maryland in the United States. The role of accelerated approval has been um, under fire, frankly, uh, because of uh, some missteps, I think, both on the part of industry and regulators. And uh, this is an opportunity to think about whether there's a vision for doing this better. Josh Sharfstein. So we have a range of players with different interests who gathered in Adelaide, South Australia for three and a half days in the middle of 2023. For the first three days, they are gathered in a room together, workshopping the issues. On the final day, the public are invited to hear the group's recommendations for accelerated access to new medicines. The person who has the job of bringing this all together is Dr Chris Henschel, who's facilitated previous Bellbury symposiums. So how does he prepare for this sort of an event? Well, it's a sort of team effort. So there's been a scientific advisory board, which was formed right at the beginning. Um, We've been meeting, I think, for the best part of a year. And that's brought together kind of key people from the different stakeholder groups. Um, So they've helped us shape the agenda. And that's really key to a meeting like this. Uh, You've got to frame it right. I am Dan Ollendorf. My title is the Director of Value Measurement and Global Health Initiatives at the Center for the Evaluation of Value and Risk in Health at Tufts Medical Center in Boston in the U.S. So our focus initially was on um, scouring the literature and other sources to understand the landscape for accelerated access and to produce the discussion paper that informed our conversations over the past four days. Dan Ollendorf. What did the man whose idea it was to tackle the issue of accelerated access to new medicines hope to achieve by bringing everyone together? Lloyd Sanson. We don't anticipate after this conference or at the end of this conference you had to say, here's a definitive statement of how to do it. That's not what this was all about. That, that would be oversimplistic. What it's an attempt to do is to bring people together in a non-threatening environment, in a, an environment which allows them to be quite honest and open and to, to identify those things upon which we can agree, those things upon which we can't agree, and those things that we could agree if they were, if they were changed. How difficult has it been to get all of these stakeholders in the same room? We've got a great group. There are some countries that we tried to engage at this meeting which were unable to do so, unfortunately. One of the disappointments to some extent is that there was no one here representing, say, for Germany today when the German system was put up as a model that perhaps other countries should consider. But that's why I've said earlier, this is the start of a process. What I was noticing is that there is, you know, an opportunity to think about what is a goal of accelerated access And how does everyone from each of the stakeholder perspectives understand that? What are the challenges? You know, what can be done in certain jurisdictions, certain countries that might not be feasible elsewhere? I'm Michelle Muchimdar. I'm from Ottawa, Canada. I work for one of our federal public drug plans. Specifically, it's called Non-Insured Health Benefits, and it's part of Indigenous Services Canada. I think sometimes we think that we can have a carbon copy of what ha- happens elsewhere across the world and apply it in our own country, which 
might not be possible for various circumstances, for various reasons, we might be able to glean from how others are doing it and help improve you know, the current challenges that, that we may be having. I'm Yasuhiro Fujiwara, call me Yasu, and I'm chief executive of pharmaceuticals and medical devices agency, Japan. In the discussion session, I talked with many people and I advised them, why don't you do the Japanese style? In the world, there are many kind of HTA style. Germany is a very peculiar style. Maybe French is also a peculiar style. But people have to learn more about other countries' style and discuss each other and search the best way for the future HTA style. And do you think there's an openness? Because often the Americans may think that they've got the best way. HDA is very difficult one because that's based on the value of each medical care. And value depends on the culture of each region. Uniform HDA style is very difficult to implement. But the one thing I hope is more inclusion from the Asian regions or South Africa or Africa or South America. A little bit diversity is needed for the attendance. Yasu Fujiwara, highlighting some of the countries that are underrepresented. Ian Carriage's observation is that there's some influential players in the room. The sorts of groups that are here are very, very powerful with very strong vested interests and they're only represented by sort of individuals working within those sectors, right? So, you know, the pharmaceutical industry, health regulators, government, you know, to to a lesser extent, evaluation agencies, these are incredibly powerful groups. Interests that powerful groups have are not given away lightly. And those kinds of discussions that, that might involve compromise and negotiation, identification of shared need, uh, points at which things can become public or transparent or more inclusive, that's not going to be straightforward. Ian Carriage. Josh Shafstein is concerned that there's a couple of things the industry doesn't want to talk about. I think I have appreciated the sensitivity of the industry representatives to any serious discussion of affordability that has been shut down where it has come up multiple times. And, you know, I think it's unfortunate. I think access and affordability go hand in hand. And I actually think that there's an opportunity for an understanding that permits greater access with affordability rather than less access with less affordability. At this point, I I don't really see too much openness to that discussion so far in this particular conversation. But overall, I think that we should be managing our policy on pharmaceuticals to improve health. And that requires access and affordability both. And so you're saying that really what you're hearing from industry is, is a real reluctance to talk about that bit. Right. When someone says, let's not talk about affordability, I would call that a reluctance to talk about affordability. Yeah, so one of the points that I think you made in the last few days was that uh, sometimes it's just really hard to get the drugs into uh, Japan and mm-hmm. into into some countries. Mm-hmm. Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah. 
Thus, we call the drug loss or Japan passing. Since the price of Japan is a little bit lower than the United States, so the recent drug development comes from the United States uh, small bio com biotech companies. And they're very uh, tight budget. They have a very tight budget. And they don't have any money to, for example, translate in Japanese or have a branch, Japanese brand, and do the marketing within Japan. So in the first place of the marketing, they skip Japan. They only sell drugs in the United States. So that's why we don't have a good drug right now. Yasu Fujiwara. Eddie Cliff says the might of the US can't be underestimated in the thinking of the drug companies. Recognising that the, the American market is, plays a huge role in the strategy that a lot of these companies use when they're designing their drug trials is really important. And so one of the reasons I work on FDA policy, even though you can hear my Australian accent, you think, why, why should we care about the FDA? Well, the FDA and their policy approaches really drives a lot of the decision-making by many of these companies and therefore the clinical trials they set up, which drugs to pursue, which drugs not to pursue, all these sorts of decisions a lot of the time are driven by uh, FDA decisions. Eddie Cliff. Bettina Ruhl is the founder and president of the Melanoma Patient Network Europe and she has personal experience of losing a loved one to cancer. Something that I have learned since starting an advocacy was I was kind of thinking that there was a person whose fault it was that something went wrong. And this is something that I've definitely altered. So when I now went into it, like, because I went really, I started with pharmaceutical industry and then I went to the regulators, I went to HDAs and payers and then research. Well, one has interactions with all of them. And the realization was that people actually often went into these professions for very similar motivations, and especially in oncology. And it was often people who were personally affected. That was then their driving force to take one of these professions. So people had a very underlying, like a similar underlying motivation, but then took different decisions based on that. And to go to these people and say it's your fault is just first on a human from a human perspective incorrect. It's it's just also not helpful. So it took me some time to realize that it is not the single entity, but it's the alignment between the pieces that is the issue or the misalignment between the pieces. Wherever you go in every stakeholder group, you will have motivated people who really deeply care. And those are the ones who are willing to participate in these more complex projects. First, one has to establish relationships because this is about people talking to each other. This is not institutions talking to each other. This is persons. So first you have to establish personal relationships and then you build trust over time. Trust is something that takes time to build and it's easy to lose. So one has to be cautious about it. And once that is established, I think, then we often see an acceleration in how we find solutions. Bettina Hull. And Single, who's also a patient advocate, says the communication's been genuine. There's been some really key moments where I think people have reminded us, yes, you're raising a point where trust was breached or where something didn't work the way it should have. But remember, that isn't the everyday example. People have been quite human, I think. Uh, I know the patients are usually the ones that get accused of emotion, but we're all human beings and we all have emotion because we all work hard at what we do and we're all trying to make a difference and I've liked when I've heard a bit of emotion in that room because it just is a, a signal to you 
someone has something that is deeply frustrating to them or someone has something that they are not feeling heard about. And, and we've got to hear that this week. I think it's useful. People have come together in the spirit we wanted, which is sort of openness. Symposium facilitator, Dr Chris Henshaw. So I always say to people at the beginning of these meetings, there's no point us flying halfway around the world to come together if we're not going to be honest with each other and listen to each other. So we have to not be frightened of saying things that other people may disagree with, but we need to say them constructively and friendly, and we need to listen to the things we don't agree with and try and think why that person is saying that and you know where the common ground is, basically, because if we want to make a solution, we're probably each going to have to accept some things we don't currently accept. Otherwise, it would all be working. I am Meinder Boysen. I'm Dutch, but I work in the United Kingdom for the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence. And we're an organization that produces guidelines and technology evaluations. There is a risk that if you invite all friends of a topic to a meeting of this kind, then you might end up kind of agreeing with each other that accelerated access is a good idea. And uh, you come up with lots of recommendations around coordination. But you may have just ignored the fact that there are there will be people who say that it is a death to evidence generation. We should really wait. Regulators should wait. Companies should wait until they've got the proper evidence sorted. Because if we continue on this path with accelerated access becoming a big thing, we might end up just killing clinical research. Now, those voices were not heard. But I think, therefore, does make it important for this group to come out with these statements and get people to interact with it, get other voices into the debate. Because we, it's too easy to say, well, you know, this is probably what everybody will think. I don't, I don't think that's the case. Minder Boysen. Over the course of the symposium, people have held very different views. But there does seem to be consensus on Belbury's role. Dan Ollendorf. Belbury has really been not only a fantastic facilitator and logistical support for this work, but has also been an honest broker. So there's no expectation that they're coming to this conversation with a particular stake or angle in mind. Uh, They want the conversation to happen, and everything they've done has really been supportive of that. Ian Kerridge agrees. Sometimes the, the most ethical thing you can do is to create discussions. Right. And Belbury's done that really effectively by creating an open space for people to get together, to share ideas, to share learnings, um, and to offer up the possibility for shared solutions. Ian Carriage. But how do others gauge whether the gathering has been a success? Eddie Cliff. It's very tricky because there are so many different stakeholders and so many different moving parts. We had uh, one session where we went through each stakeholder. Everyone got a chance to comment and basically tell everyone else what to do. Everyone got to say, well, what do we want industry to do? Everyone got to say, what do we want regulators to do? Everyone got to say, what do we want HTA payers to do? Everyone got to say, what do we want you know, patients and, and organisations to do? I thought it was a really good session because everyone had the opportunity to tell everyone else what to do. There were some really kind of... Frank, but but important takeaways there. Can I know how much each organisation is going to take from those from those recommendations? It's hard to know, but but I certainly hope and can be optimistic that we've at least thrown down the challenge to each stakeholder to do what they can to get 
good drugs to patients faster. And, you know, I think that's certainly a starting point and certainly a, a role for the, a meeting like this to have. We can be part of a change, eh? but we need the other stakeholders as well. And in the, the area of common ground, so to speak, right, where, where there is the highest overlap and the highest interest of everybody to work on is, is data, which is not really surprising. Christoph Gleitzer is Chief Global Value and Access Officer at Johnson & Johnson. Data is all important from his perspective. The data in a sense of that early disease level discussion on what is in that specific disease area actually the data point or the data points we should look for. What is a meaningful measure, outcome, evidence measure? Meaningful for patients, measuring something that, that matters. Meaningful for regulatories to inform their decision making and meaningful for payers to inform their decision-making. But there we should even more engage with external stakeholders, again, in this trust-based concept, and, and discuss, okay, what is it? What is that endpoint? And there will be uncertainty. How do we manage this uncertainty the best way? How does Michelle Mujumjar rate the symposium? It has been really useful, and I think what's been most useful about it is the honest dialogue. There were quite a few ideas where there was general agreement. I think there were also quite a few areas where we didn't have agreement. I don't think we need to sort of start from scratch next time. So for me, what what I would hope is the idea of continuing on this conversation, you know, while at home, you know, bringing some of this back to my colleagues, uh, you know, checking for their understanding, what questions they may have that I, for example, didn't pose here, and kind of continuing on that that conversation. While it's great that we've built this sort of foundation and, and trust to some degree face-to-face, I think we can now do some of this work um, virtually as, as well. Michelle Mujumjar. As the symposium draws to a close, Chris Henschel is focused on what's next. Once it's finished, we have to sit down and write a paper which kind of tries to pull together what we felt and where we got. And actually, until you do that, it's quite difficult to really understand where you've got um, because pulling three days' discussions together is, you know, people can't do it in their heads. So sometimes people leave these meetings a little bit, oh, we didn't do X, we didn't do Y, you know, we didn't boil the ocean and solve the world's problems. But actually, when you give them the draft report to comment on, you often get quite positive feedback in terms of, gosh, yes, that was, <laughs> it, it was quite useful after all, you know. So I think the proof of the pudding is in the eating and we don't eat it for a few weeks yet. Chris Henschel. Dan Ollendorf outlines the priorities. Our first task is to really synthesize all of the discussions into uh, a full meeting report so that we're including both the landscape setting we've already done, as well as the products, the major products of our discussions. We do have an interest, as we had initially, in creating a statement of goals and principles. Uh, we've gotten a lot of comment on our draft, and so we'll have to think through what makes the most sense for the final version of that. But then there's going to be additional work moving forward. We'll be producing several peer-reviewed publications for dissemination, I'm guessing they will focus both on the landscape as well as the proceedings of the meeting. 
And I think there is a lot of interest among members of the uh, Scientific Advisory Board and the broader set of attendees in trying to create a future whereby there may be other workshops that focus on specific activities and aspects of this optimization. So is it your hope that as a result of this gathering, there will be more specific meetings to tease out some of the, the details around differences and, and where things can be improved? Yes, indeed, that's my hope. So as an example, there were several methodologic details that at the moment are somewhat vague in the uh, application of some of these programs. So there's interest in developing potentially a methodologic working group, maybe with some technical experts who've not been with us yet, to understand how we might, for example, further define and quantify what unmet medical need means, or to set criteria for determining whether a surrogate endpoint is reasonably likely to predict clinical benefits. So there are statements out there that don't have a lot of detail behind them yet, but we're hoping that maybe some of those workshops will help provide that detail. Dan Ollendorf. Brian O'Rourke believes a long-term commitment is needed. One of the, the things that I think Bellberry can do and the secretariat that they put together is to follow up on these reports, say in six months, nine months, one year, five years. Did anybody actually do anything with this? Or where are we now? Is there a need to revisit this topic because there's been changes uh, to policy, to uh, the types of therapies that are coming forward? Brian O'Rourke. Dan Ollendorf has the last word. The real success was in getting all of these diverse stakeholders and perspectives into the same room. So we were able to do that, and really what came out of it was some very significant output. We feel as though there's a lot of energy and enthusiasm for moving the topic forward, both in terms of trying to think about the policy implications and the infrastructure needs in certain localities to make accelerated access work more optimally, but also to tease apart and to take apart some of the elements of these programs to think about what might be rejiggered or rethought. And if there is some sort of disruptive solution that we hadn't really considered in detail yet to maybe think through that as well. Dan Ollendorf. In January 2024, a full report on the Congress was published on Belbury's website, summarising the key themes of the meeting and the steps to be considered as part of an accelerated access framework. You can find it at belbury.com.au. A statement on the Congress says, developing effective accelerated access pathways is a shared responsibility between regulators, those developing and marketing new medicines, payers and HTA bodies, patients and clinicians, and governments. There's definitely more to come. Thanks for listening to From Lab to Life. I'm Alison Rogers. A special thank you to everyone who agreed to be interviewed during a frenetic time at the Accelerated Access to New Medicine Symposium. Join me next time when I discover what it takes to work at the largest human research ethics reviewer in Australia. This podcast was made possible by Belbury. Belbury.